G'day and welcome to GradChat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's GradChat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and the CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, if you don't know by now, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Also a reminder, you know, unfortunately, we're not in the the CFRC studios right now because of all the social distancing that we have to do. So sometimes the clarity of the recording isn't quite as good as if we are in the studio. So our apologies there. But we're going to do our best to uh, make it sound as good as possible for you. Um, and as we, you know, we definitely want to continue the programming despite all the interruptions that we're getting. And it's interesting too because when now we're doing it this way, I can be in Kingston doing the recording this end, and our students can be over in Victoria, BC, or as today our student is in Prince Edward County. And it's hard to know what kind of connections that they all have, because um, depending on where you live depends on how good or how strong, I guess, the internet connection is. So all these little things are thrown our way. But we will get through it and you will get to listen to the fabulous work which our grad students are doing, which brings me to introduce you today to Rachel Kuzmig, who is doing a PhD in Geography and Planning under the supervision of Dr. Paul Tretz. Welcome to Grad Chat, Rachel. Thank you. Excited to chat with you. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So, Rachel, um, as I alluded to, you're in Prince Edward County, which isn't too far from Kingston. But I'm, I imagine not being on the so-called mainland, it has its issues sometimes with the internet out there. Because I, I guess you could be considered rural. Is that correct? I am absolutely considered rural. I believe the zoning for my property is rural residential. So my internet is through the satellite. Now that a lot of my neighbors are home as well, I think they're all binge watching Netflix. So sometimes it can be a little slow. (laughs) That's why I guess sometimes there's a bit of a delay, which makes it makes things interesting from the other end. For sure. So I I guess what we should do is just go straight into your research. And actually, I'm going to talk about your research topic. And before we even get into you explaining, I'll have I'll have another question for you. So your research topic examines bird habitat structure across space and over time time using remote sensing data. And I think one of the first things I thought about when I read that title was, why are you doing doing this in geography and planning and not, say, biology? My project is actually quite interdisciplinary, um, and I do collaborate with some of my friends in the biology department. So Dr. Paul Martin has been very helpful to my project. I think that one of the reasons I'm honed in geography is that I'm using a particular type of data that perhaps is more commonly used among geographers than biologists, though that's not always the case. But for instance, my background in my undergrad is in geography and biology. So I am kind of comfortable in both worlds, but I've just landed at home in geography. 
And I think that's important because that happens a lot, you know, geography, environmental studies, biology, there is that real cross, like you said, crossover. And sometimes I, I guess it's a matter of, like you said, in this particular instance, it's kind of the data collection that you're doing, but sometimes it also depends on your supervisor, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Of where they sure. fit. I think increasingly we're seeing these kinds of interdisciplinary projects. So the kind of silo that you fit in in an academic structured setting is a little more fluid than perhaps it used to be. Right. And I and I and you're right there. And I think that's the nice thing about it is that there is more of this cross disciplinary and people are looking at it this way. So before when people said, Oh, I'm I'm just in this one department, that meant a lot more than today where you know, you could you could straddle a lot of different ones. Absolutely. So so let's get into it. So with your research then, can you give us just a bit of an overview of what you're trying to do there before we get into some more of the harder questions for you, so to speak? For sure. So every bird or any species of any kind kind of has a preferred habitat. So if I think when I'm walking in Kingston versus when I've walked in Toronto or here at home in Prince Edward County, just the birds I'm seeing in these areas are very different. In Toronto, I see a ton of pigeons, for instance, here in Prince Edward County, they're few and far between. So obviously, we know intuitively just from, you know, walking around in our neighborhoods that the birds that we see and the species that we see have these kind of particular habitat requirements. And there's a lot of different ways that we can look at them. Right. I'm looking at them using habitat structure, which happens to be very important for the bird species that I'm looking at. And I'm looking at it in a way that uses remote sensing data. So this is just one of many options of how this problem can be approached. But as remote sensing data become more and more available and more accessible and cheaper and more widespread, I think that there's a lot of neat things that can be done with remote sensing techniques and data that couldn't be done uh, as easily using traditional surveying techniques. So which particular bird populations are you are you looking at in particular? Yeah, so here in Ontario, I've been doing my work at the Queen's University Biological Station, so about 45 minutes or so north of Kingston. It's an amazing facility. There's tons of birds and other species. And there I'm looking in particular at cerulean warbler, which is a species of conservation interest. And then I have a second study site in the UK at Monk's Wood, which is by Cambridge, uh, north of London. And there I'm looking primarily at chiffchaff habitat. Uh, are, they, are they similar kind of, I mean, this is probably a silly question. Are they similar sort of birds? Or because why did you want to look at one in just north of Kingston and one in the UK? So these two species do have similarities in terms of the habitat and in particular the habitat structure that they are using. So the habitat for both cerulean warbler and chiffchaff is generally described as mature forest habitat. So they are similar in that sense, which makes them comparable species to look at across these two study sites in these obviously very different places. Yeah, well, that's good. So so let's go, before we talk more about the individual birds, I, I guess most people will probably want to understand what do you mean by airborne laser scanning or and, and these other words you use, spectral remote sensing and passive acoustic monitoring data. Right. What do you mean by those things? And why? And then I guess why use them to study bird habitat? Right. So starting with airborne laser scanning, that is a remote sensing data and method to look at structure. 
So how that works basically is plane flies over a forest with a laser pointing down and everywhere that the laser hits something, there's a data point with a three-dimensional coordinate. So you can imagine over the course of okay. flying over the Queen's University Biological Station, there are hundreds of thousands of these points that are captured that represent the structure. Spectral remote sensing is what I'm using is satellite data. And you can think of when you take a just a regular picture with your camera, you're looking at an RGB image. So spectral remote sensing is that, but more than just RGB. Usually you're looking at more wavelengths, more bands. And then passive acoustic monitoring is okay. a acoustic remote sensing data type. And that's basically a fancy way to say that you're using a recording device that's been, in my instance, strapped to a tree in the woods that's capturing data every 30 minutes for five minutes to capture all the vocalizations in the woods. So these are all passive techniques because you're not there measuring these things directly yourself. You're using this technology to get these measurements. And I guess you can cross-reference them all, can't you? Because it's interesting, you know, listening to the bird calls as opposed to where they're maybe sitting at the time doing those bird calls or they flying or something like that. And is that the kind of thing? Yeah, so you know where the recording device itself is and you have an idea of the area that's captured because sound can only travel so far. Of course, some birds are louder, some birds are quieter, and some uh, structures are denser, so sound doesn't travel quite as easily. But you can localize or at least delimit the area where these birds are occurring. And like I said, you do know where the recording device itself is. So you said here in, in uh, Canada, it's up at the Q Queen's University Biology Station. How are you doing, how are you collecting your data right now? Because, you know, we, we've got a few restrictions going on right now. Or can you just download it? Does it all just go onto a computer right now and, and sends you the information? So I have the acoustic data already that's already been collected by Dr. Paul Martin in two previous seasons. This summer I was, or rather starting right. Tuesday next week, I was supposed to be at CUBES doing territory mapping for Cerulean Warbler, but the field season has been put on hold and it's something that hopefully I'll be able to do uh, next year, assuming we're not quite in the same situation as we are right now with COVID-19. So normally this time of the year, I would be uh, out at cubes in the field doing Cerulean Warbler territory mapping with a handheld GPS. And I'd be taking 3D measurements as well. So I would have, again, the 3D measurements of where those birds are in the canopy. So how are you going to do that for your UK uh, field research? So the data is a little bit different than I have in the UK. They have been collecting data uh, in this particular area for decades now. So I actually have a time series of data there that's going to allow me to ask some different kind of questions. So I was very fortunate to go to right. the UK last spring to visit my study sites and to meet my collaborators. Again, I was supposed to go there earlier this year, but that's been put on hold. Whoop. But I do have my data for the UK in hand just from those previous data collections. That's great. So I guess my other question for your data that you're collecting here in just north of Kingston at Cubes, now that you, this part of it you can't map until potentially next summer, although who knows, you might be able to get in at the end of the summer depending on how things go. But if you can't get there until next summer, 
is that going to distort your data collection? Because the environment could have potentially changed within one year. So am I, does that make sense? Like the data's not, you know, you're not collecting the voices now, you're not collecting where they're positioning now, they're out of sync now. Yeah, and this is something that other researchers have actually looked at is what kind of time lags are appropriate. And for the bird that I'm looking at here, like I mentioned, they tend to prefer mature forests. And mature forests aren't really changing as quickly as, say, an early successional environment where you have a farmer's field that the farmers have let go. And now you can see very quickly changes with shrubs coming in and trees. But with a mature forest, they're reasonably stable. So there can definitely be things like you know, if there's a windstorm, some of the big old trees might get knocked down. But over the entire area, mature forest is pretty stable. Oh, that that's good. So I guess then the next obvious question, how is understanding bird habitat structure useful? And, and the second part to that would be, what is or are the real world applications for it? Absolutely. So cerulean warbler, as I mentioned, it is a species of conservation interest. It's declined significantly since the 1960s, and it does well in Canada in and around cubes, actually. So there seems to be something with that particular area that these species are able to continue to breed and their population has been relatively stable compared to other areas. So I think there's a lot of value in understanding what it is about that habitat that they are using in terms of canopy structure. And maybe those conclusions can be used to inform forest management or conservation policies in other areas. And then for the UK, the bird that I'm looking at there, chip chaff, it's not a species of conservation interest, but in some areas, the population's rising and in other areas, the population's declining. And again, we don't quite understand what is contributing to those opposing directions for the population. So it's really just in the UK to get a better understanding of the habitat used by the species. And in Canada, it's really to inform those conservation and forest management policies. That's interesting, actually, because if you th- if you look at the Cerulean warbler, where in have you gone back in history to find out where they used to inhabit here in Canada? Because like you said, now it seems to be doing really well out at cubes but what other places in the past were they found and what's and I guess that's what you're looking at is what's what changes happened to those areas for them not to like it anymore yeah so I know in other areas that are not in my study area but in southern Ontario which has been you know heavily changed to an agricultural landscape there are kind of refuges where cerulean warbler are still found in these small woodlots but their numbers have declined just because there has been that shift from more forested to more agricultural environments Whereas at Cubes, being up on the Canadian Shield, right. having a provincial park right next to it is probably great as well, because that's protected. There hasn't been that same landscape modification. So while I'm not looking at the landscape changes directly with looking at the structure that these birds are inhabiting, I can kind of look at the threshold. So what is the, you know, the minimum tree height right. that the cerulean warbler will use? Well, that, I think that's really, really important, particularly as, you know, things are getting warmer and like you said, the landscape is changing. And so that does have an effect. 
So I guess you must get asked this question all the time as a, as a researcher. Why should anyone care about some bird? <laughs> I, I do get that quite a bit. And I think it's kind of just a different way that you have to think about it. We tend to use these terms like population declines without really thinking about necessarily what that means. And I like to remind everyone that when I'm talking about population declines, I'm talking about a bird that may very well go extinct. And I think that, you know, we have these species that perhaps we're more familiar with in that context, like pandas and tigers and these kind of big furry animals. But there are a lot of animals that are at risk and may very well no longer exist. So I think there's value in trying to conserve and preserve and understand just so that this bird can continue to survive and live in our landscape with us. And I think that's very, very important. And as an Australian living here now, the the decimation of some habitats in Australia due to the fires last uh, last summer in Australia, which is winter here, of course, we know that we've lost uh, a lot of habitats, which means we've lost a lot of uh, species, both birds and animals and plants, maybe, who knows, because of that. And it does have a a horrible effect on on all of it. I'm going to move on to something a little bit different. It's kind of a little bit different. But, you know, one of the things I love so much about our grad students is that you know, they're always looking at opportunities to promote their research. And, you know, Grad Chat is one of those. But at the other other side as well, apart from conferences, they're also looking to engage the community and perhaps get that next kid thinking about research, which I think is absolutely awesome. Because there's one thing talking about your research to people in your field at conferences. But I think the, the, the more, not necessarily challenging, but exciting part could be letting the community know what's going on and and getting them also enthused for for instance with this with habitat if we if you can give us the details that we need to make sure we can protect this habitat for the cerulean warbler then um, we can play our part to help that and i understand rachel that you're involved in a community outreach program called let me think of it conference to classroom which is an excellent title so can you explain to us what that is yeah so it's actually a nonprofit that i founded uh, about a year ago now currently on hold because obviously classrooms aren't really a thing that exists in the current context but basically <laughs> the idea is we go to so many conferences as grad students and you know your attention span over the course of a day or many days or a week may have you know a little bit of a little bit of downtime that attention span where you're a little tired from sitting and listening to talk after talk after talk, or maybe there's no talks that are relevant to you. Maybe you want to do something else with that time where you're in these new cities. And one of the opportunities that Conference Classroom presents is, so if you can take half an hour or an hour out of your conference to go and visit an elementary or mostly secondary school uh, and just talk about your research, you can really inspire those students to maybe get into what you're doing or just make them aware of, you know, new areas of research and new possibilities. And I talk a lot about how I've ended up in a field where I'm doing things that I didn't even know existed growing up. I grew up in a very kind of blue collar town. I'm a first generation student. I didn't know remote sensing was a thing that existed. 
And I think that having those people come and talk to you when you're a kid or a teenager can really make a huge difference to those those young minds. And then on the side of the grad student who's attending the conferences, I think it's really good practice to talk about your research to these different groups. And I think that getting that experience, I mean, obviously helps you understand your research as well, because you have to be able to speak to it at these kind of different levels for these different groups. And then as well, if you're a grad student, you know that you're always applying for various things and it never hurts to uh, to do that kind of community outreach as well. <laughs> do you find a lot of grad students want to join in what you've what you've started, both from Queens and other university students? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people are interested. I think there's a lot of recognition as well that you know, as grad students, many of us get funding from the government. Um, so I, for instance, have NSERC funding and. That funding exists because of taxpayers. So, you know, there's this kind of sense that you're doing your duty in a way to give back to the community and to the people. Giving back. Right. That's great. And so you say you normally go to high schools more often. But what about elementary schools? Because I would have thought, particularly in your field, that would be an awesome group. You know, those uh, elementary school kids age, an awesome group to get excited about nature. Absolutely. The only reason it's been mostly high school so far is it's mostly high school teachers who have reached out. But, you know, I think that most grad students could share their work with kids of kind of any age. Uh, And it's really just because so far it's been high school teachers who have responded more than elementary school teachers. And that's the only reason for that. Right. Is there is there some way that you can connect with, for instance, the Uh, faculty of education here for them to reach out with all their with the students that they have there to bring some of this into their classrooms that would be a really excellent idea actually and not one that I've thought of really my focus has been kind of recruiting grad (laughs) students and convincing them to get on board but I haven't really looked into that kind of uh, institutional support that we have at Queen's I, I think the other part that I like about this this thing that you put together, conference to classroom, is that it's from, you know, you go to a conference and I think this is a great way for conference developers to say how many of you grad students would like us to reach out, et cetera, et cetera, to the schools wherever the conference is being held. And I think that's another great element for a grad student, as like you said, as being part of a, going to a conference, whether you're presenting yourself at the conference or doing a poster at a conference or just being there to listen, this is a great avenue that you can all participate in. Absolutely. I'm a member of the Canadian Association of Geographers and the Canadian Remote Sensing Society. And there's, you know, obviously across all the different disciplines, there's similar things. And most of these societies have a kind of student section to them. So this is something that, you know, could very easily fit in that kind of space as well. So I guess the next thing I would like to talk to you about, as I say each each time, there's, you know, our students do a lot of different things apart from their research. And, and of course, Rachel's explained one thing that she, she's also doing outside of her research, which is the community outreach, which is also super important. But you also are a member of lots of different clubs and things like the 500 Women Scientists or Go Geomatics and things like that. What made you want to get involved in some of those 
that sort of programming when you when you're clearly very busy already <laughs> too busy sometimes i think for you know for the same reason i talked about conference to classroom coming from a blue collar family first generation student the 500 women scientists is promoting women in stem which is something very near and dear to my heart as a woman in stem so i think the work that they do is very important right. and if i'm able to promote it and inspire again you know the young women in school and, you know, elementary and high school, then I hope to be able to impact them in that way. And then Go Geomatics and other groups are more networking opportunities. It's not, there's some promotion in there as well, but it's more getting to know the people who are in your field, in your area at various stages of their career. So there's a lot of opportunities for mentorship in organizations like Go Geomatics. And you like to do guided hikes and things. So are you actually the guide or are you just following a guide? <laughs> I'm actually the guide, but again, that's on hold this year. So I I basically hike as much as I can. And one of my favorite things with fieldwork is it's basically hiking for science. So I love that aspect of it. Uh, so a number of years ago, I was... Right. When I was an undergraduate student, I started offering guided hikes and people were quite into it. So it's something I've continued, albeit quite limited in the current kind of context, like I said. But yeah, I love taking people on hikes and introducing them to the local flora and fauna and just talking about ecology and conservation. And last year I started doing kind of a women's networking hike. So just for different women in Prince Edward County oh, who right. want to kind of connect and instead of connecting, you know, over drinks or at a cafe or anything like that, we all just went for a hike and kind of talked about the challenges and successes we were having in our everyday lives. So that was really nice to combine, you know, the nature side of things and then the supporting other women side of things. I think what you're doing, Rachel, is fantastic because you clearly have a passion for the environment and nature and you're using the, the skills that you're learning and the, you know, the research that you're doing to also help, help other people in the community learn more about our environment and how we impact the environment. So I think you've, you've found your niche, haven't you? <laughs> I think so. And I'm happy here. So it works out. <laughs> Well, that's always a good thing. You've got to be happy where you're living. So so that's perfect. So, all right. So, Rachel, you clearly got a bit more to do with your research and hopefully you can get to finish off the field work that you need to do sooner rather than later. But I know, like you said, you've got the data, the other bits of data that you can use. So it, it, you can still move on with your work, which is fantastic. So good luck with the rest of that. Uh, I think you should come back on because you clearly love talking. You've got a, a, a knack for talking, no problem there, which is why, probably why you're very good with the community outreach. So come back on at some stage and best of luck with the rest of your research. Thank you. So that's it, everyone. A, another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can down, download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Thank you.